Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this Wednesday, October the 9th, 2019. Happens to be my husband's 60th birthday. So, you know, I'm going to give a little shout out to the Lord today for Jim LaBerge. Uh, you know, he, he really does make it possible for me to do what I do every day with such freedom and joy. And so he's a huge part of not only this ministry, but, you know, obviously just a huge part of um, my life. And so give a shout out to God today in Thanksgiving for my husband who is fearfully and wonderfully made and my tender tender and uh, all kinds of other good things. So Jim LaBerge, happy birthday, my beloved. Um, yesterday's conversation with Ritz Carlton co-founder Horst Schultze, um, when I asked him who inspired him, uh, first of all, it was not a it was not a question that I think he expected to hear. Um but I loved the way that he answered it because he just immediately and spontaneously answered that it was his wife who inspires him at this stage of life. And I love that. I thought that was um, wonderfully affectionate and real. And then he went on to talk about that. He also talked about how to cast a vision and build a culture and what it looks like to live and lead with excellence, not only in your own life, but in your business as a Christian. And so that's something that we talk about uh, each week here in this segment um, with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. And so I wanted to highlight, for those of you who may have missed my conversation yesterday with Horst Schultze, um, that's really, if you like this segment with Bill English, you would probably really love that conversation from yesterday. And you can go back and grab the podcast of that episode at MyFaithRadio.com on the Mornings with Carmen podcast page. Horst talked about excellence um, being God's way and therefore the way of God's people. and um, and then he unpacks the image of what it means to be a person of God, seeing everyone else as a person of God, and how that really does change uh, how we how we move and live in the world today. So next up, uh, I'm going to talk with Bill English about leadership, about risk. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about risk from the viewpoint that um, if you're a if you're a believer and you trust in God and He is leading you into, sending you into, deploying you into a particular um, space, we're going to call it ministry, but it could be anything, Um, then he's not sending you to a place that he hasn't already gone, and he's not sending you there alone, and he's actually going to shoulder the risk along the way. So what have we to fear? And we're going to look at the life of David in this conversation about risk-taking. What if we were to see risk as possibility when others see only peril? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Bill English is in the house. to uh, the conversation that Bill English and I have now been having for, I don't know, something like 14 weeks, 15 weeks. 
the leadership lessons that we learned from the life of David. We're coming uh, to certainly toward the end of this series of conversations. We're thinking that next week we'll do kind of a roundup of what we feel like we've learned, leadership lessons from the life of David. Um, so, Bill, uh, first of all, welcome back, and thank you for this deep dive into uh, into First Samuel. Oh, you're welcome. It's been yeah, my it's pleasure. Fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's good to unpack, um, you know, a, a, a portion of God's word really intently over time. Yes. So we arrive today at First Samuel chapter 22. I'm tempted to just ask you to start by like reading the first five verses. Well, how about if I do that? Okay, be great. Yeah, so 1 Samuel 22, 1 through 5. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down there to him. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mitzpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Hey, would you let my family, my my father and my mother, come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Okay. So the characters involved here are David um, his brothers and his father's household, this crowd of people in verse two who are in distress, in debt, and disconnected, discontented. That sounds like a fairly literally motley crew. Uh, this foreign, foreign uh, friend, the king of Moab, and then the prophet Gad. Um, there is a lot in here that we can talk about. Let's have the conversation about the group whom God gathers unto David, because it's really, uh, it, it's really a very diverse uh, group of people, and from the eyes that we would have in the world, maybe not the group of people that we would want to have as our crew, um, or ultimately our government, which is who these guys become. Um, but it it sure does sound like the people who made their way to Jesus. These were guys, <clears throat> you know, the, the three words are distress, debt, or discontented. Well, the, the debt piece I kind of get, but the, the distress and the discontented, why would, they, why would they be distressed or discontented? Probably because they are opposing Saul in some way too, and they're discontented with the lack of godly leadership in Israel. That's my, that's my take on this. And so it just seems to me that the crew that gathers around him is probably a highly talented, crazy smart group of people who are on the wrong side of a godless government. And they are hmm. gathering around David because they know that he is the next anointed king and they want to help him get there, right? They want to help him. We got to figure out how to get out of Saul and get into David kind of thing. And uh, to me, that's that's really what's happening in verse two there. These are really good people. So, uh, well, that's helpful. Like, right, that's a helpful way of of seeing this, because I think at first blush, we don't look at those descriptors and say to ourselves, oh, those are the people that I would, you know, I would want. I would want to build a team with them. I would want to build a, a nation with them. Um, but you've helped us see that differently. A part of it is because of the circumstance of the day in which they live, and they happen at this point to be on the wrong side of a godless government. But the day is coming when they will be the the good guys of the new government. Yeah, and, and they will be supporting David, and they will help him uh, mm -hmm. really with a, a fabulous reign of some 30-some years. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, and then I want to get to um, the prophet Gad. Uh, yeah. You know, this is not... Uh, Tell us about Gad. I, I, I will just admit to you, I don't think I know a lot about the prophet Gad. Yeah, I don't either. He just kind of shows up on the scene here. We're not we're not told where he comes from, where he's going. Is this not... it? Is this his only appearance? Well, okay. isn't the book? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's a I don't know. It's... in the middle of the show. Let, let that go. Let that go. Someone someone will text us. Yeah. yeah maybe <laughs> a listener can text a us a quick biography yeah. or something. But Gad... Gad shows up. I mean, he's in verse 5, and he says to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Go to the land of Judah. Well, wh- where's Jerusalem? It's in Judah. Where's Saul? In Judah. And uh, and so what Gad is basically saying to David is, hey, you got to get out of your comfort zone. you got to get out of your safety net here, and I need you to go toward the fire, toward the bullets, towards the danger. That's what God wants you to do. So a couple things here. Number one, Uh, David is now listening to God, and so God is able to send David a messenger whom David will listen to. You know, before David was trying to do things on his own, he lies to the he lies to the priest. He knows he shouldn't have uh, spoken in front of Doeg, and he, and a whole bunch of people die because of that. And now David's heart has changed. He's following God. God can send him a messenger. You kind of wonder, don't you, when you're in leadership, could God send this person a messenger? One of the mm-hmm. ways you look at leaders and evaluate them is just at an intuitive level is to say. Could God send them a messenger, and would they really listen? Mm. So, um, faithful to their call, <clears throat> I have now heard from a listener. Gad is uh, was a seer or a prophet, uh, mentioned actually throughout the Hebrew Bible, one of the personal prophets of King David. Um, first mentioned here in 1 Samuel 22, 5, but then uh, referred to in 2 Samuel 24, um, after David confesses his sin of taking a census of the people of Israel and Judah, God then sends Gad to David to offer him a choice of three forms of punishment. Well, that's interesting. And then Gad is also mentioned a final time in Second uh, Samuel twenty four eighteen, coming to David and telling him to build an altar to God after God stops the plague that David has chosen as a punishment. Um, apparently, there are also references to Gad in First Chronicles uh, 21 and 29, but what is referenced in First Chronicles 29, 29, um, which are the chronicles of Gad, are understood to be lost. There you go. That's what I know about Gad. See, it's, it's always good. Thank you to our listeners who supply us such great information during the show. All right, Bill, let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about risk. David does what the prophet Gad uh, tells him to do. Like, right, he takes... He takes the counsel that he has received, and he does something that from the viewpoint of the world would would appear absolutely uh, risky. But because it's in God's will and because David trusts God, David does exactly what he's instructed to do. Um, So we're going to talk about risk-taking when we we know we're following the will of God. Uh, When we come back, we're talking with Bill English from BibleAndBusiness.com. We'll be right back. So you see God and who helps you see uh, the future into which God is calling you. Gad helped David see uh, what would have looked like risk. Instead, uh, he saw it as possibility. Talk talk with us, um, Bill, about risk and risk-taking and the nature of leadership. Well, 
how how the two are related. Leaders are obviously risk takers or they wouldn't be leaders. Uh, some are more risk takers than others, honestly. Uh, some leaders are quite cautious, actually. I'm working with one now on a business deal, and uh, he's just one of the most cautious men I've ever met. Uh, and yet he's the CEO of a $200 million company here in the uh, state of Minnesota. So um, risk. Risk is something that every business owner faces. They face it when they first start out. They, uh, I am always fond of saying that I'm only three to five business decisions away from bankruptcy at any given time. Uh, risk is something that's just part of our life. Risk represents danger. It's a danger that can be uh, fatal. It can be lethal to either a business, to your person, to your reputation, to uh, to something that is of meaning and value to you or to a group of people. That's what a risk is. And risk mitigation is all about trying to uh, quarantine that danger or make sure that the danger uh, cannot come to fruition in some form or fashion. No significant ministry, Carmen, as you and I have talked offline about this, no significant ministry ever happens without significant risk. So people who want to uh, make sure that they are safe and comfortable and, and that you know nothing bad is going to happen to them and yet they want to launch out into ministry, probably not going to happen. The ministry is probably not going to go anywhere because you really need to risk quite a bit in order to have um, significant ministry success. I guess I'm thinking here um, about people who have become very risk averse in some ways in their lives, um, and yet they they risk a great deal in ways that they probably do not consider. Uh, I'm thinking here about the way in which I have an uh, I have a friend. She's quite old. Um, and she doesn't see the risks on social media. She doesn't see the risks in giving her personal information out to somebody over the phone. <laughs> like, right. So part of part of the challenge that I think that we that we face is there are risks that are real. That if we if we are not on guard, um, we can be fooled and we can really, gosh, really endanger ourselves and others. Um but then there are experiences like that throughout the life of David. I mean, David did not see the bear nor the lion nor Goliath in the same ways that others would see similar risks, similar challenges. He saw them as, um, wow, something that God had called him as a shepherd initially and then um, as a, a man of war called onto the battlefield in defense of his God. Uh, defense of the name of God against this heathen who was saying horrible things about God. Um, David viewed himself as really God's agent in in life. And so is part of this our view of ourselves and who's bearing the risk? Is is that part of this conversation that we don't we don't see that God's the one bearing the risk? I look I I think it's two parts, and I think you've already touched on one of them. God is bearing the risk. The other part is that we can't let this danger continue because of of the huge negative effects that this danger will have. We Mm. just can't let that happen. That is not an option. That danger existing is not an option. So you look at David with the lion and the bear. He has to kill them to save his sheep. You look Mm. at David with Goliath. We can't let this guy stand out there and profane the name of God for heaven's sakes. We can't do this. 
uh, we we th- we're better than this. You know, we're God's people. We got to stand up to this guy. And so it just seems to me that David looks at these dangers and goes, it, it, "It's not." It, what doesn't cross his mind first is, how am I going to be killed or harmed by this or what could possibly happen to me? What crosses his mind first is, we got to stop this danger because of the good things that are going on, and, and we have to stop that danger, and I'm going to be a part of it. And he's, that's, that's just how he's wired. You know, I wonder, Bill, bringing this home for everybody who's listening right now, we are probably much more focused on protecting ourselves against personal risk than we are about risking ourselves on behalf of the name of God or what God might want um, to have accomplished in our day. You know, it's interesting. I'm leading a tour to Israel a year from this coming April. And the first question I always get is, is it safe? (laughs) And you answer (laughs) with a line from C.S. Lewis about Aslan, right? Oh, I don't know what's the lion. <laughs> oh, okay. What's so the lion? yeah, he's not a safe lion, right? Right. He's he's not a safe lion, but he's good. Yeah. Like right, I want to be with the lion. Yeah. I want to be with the one who is the lion, um, because if I'm with anybody else, I mean, I you know I'm not safe. Yeah. You know, you the lion is not safe. The lion is good. Thanks be to God. Um, but the lion is not safe. Like there's a um, there's a risk to being God's agent in the world today. But it's but it's a risk that he that he bears that he shoulders. I want to be with him. But you know the risk of not acting, the risk of not going towards the danger when God calls you is actually greater than the risk that is in front of you. No question. You know, no question. I'm, it, for God's people in the world, the risk is is captivity. It's the loss of a culture. It's a harvest of unrighteousness and having to live with it. Yeah, and that's a greater risk than any risk God might be calling us to today in ministry. Absolutely. All right, so uh, those of you who are listening right now, um, God is leading you by the power of his spirit to make uh, his name great today yes. in some particular way, in some particular arena, in a part of the world where the enemy thinks that he is king. And the enemy's wrong, and the agents of the enemy uh, are wrong. And you are an ambassador of the kingdom and an agent of grace. And you are sent forth, not uh, not at personal risk, don't view it that way. We're trying to help you see this in a different way today. Um, you are, uh, you go with God, you go for God to make the name of God great in this generation. Uh, so, Thank you so much, um, Bill, for this leadership lesson from the life of David. You guys can actually get all of what we talked about today at BibleAndBusiness.com. And, Bill, we'll see you again next week. You bet. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much. we got to take a, a break for Breakpoint. You may uh, have heard that the... Church of Latter-day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, held their 189th General Conference. You may have heard some news out of that. Um, You may have heard that Mitt Romney, who's a very high-profile Mormon, um, is being nudged by supporters to consider a run for the presidency of the United States against incumbent Republican Donald Trump. Um, I want you to hear about and from Lisa Brockman. Uh, Lisa is a former Mormon, 
And uh, in her book, Out of Zion, she actually tells her own story um, and, and uh, of conversion um, out of Mormonism into a living faith in Jesus Christ. So Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple, Lisa Brockman is up next. Mom and Dad, find yourself getting all twisted up and worried about your teen? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Billy Graham once said, Anxiety is the natural result when our hopes are centered in anything short of God and His will for our life. Wow, that's a convicting statement. But let's face it, as a parent, it's really hard not to worry about your kids. We worry about what they're doing, where they're at, who they're with, We fret over the choices they make, and we lie awake at night thinking about their future. So today, if you find yourself weary and worried and overwhelmed with fear, lay it all down at God's feet. Put your hope and trust in Him. Why? Even in the midst of chaos, God is always in control. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Lisa Brockman is with me now. She is a writer and a missionary raised in the Mormon faith. Jesus met Jesus while studying at the University of Utah, a staff member of Crew, what many of you recognize as Campus Crusade. Lisa is passionate about her family, spiritual formation, Jesus. So uh, Lisa Brockman, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Yeah, so you've you've chronicled all of this in a book, and I want to be sure that um, that people get that title several times while we're talking. It's Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple. That's the name of the book. Lisa Brockman is the author, and you can find her at lisabrockman.me. Um, Lisa, let's, let's just start with um, your upbringing. I think that for a lot of people, they're thinking to themselves— I have the faith that I have because it is the faith in which I was raised. It is it is the faith of my family household. That is not true for mm-hmm. you. The faith that you now practice and that you now possess and are possessed by and share with others is a faith that is distinctively different than the faith in which you were raised. Um, we don't often have the opportunity to talk with people who have a conversion experience from one faith expression to another. And so I'm delighted mm-hmm. to have that conversation with you today. Thank you. Well, my growing up years were um, marked by great deep devotion. I'm a sixth generation Mormon, and my family is deeply devoted to their faith system. And that's all I ever knew. And so as a little girl, I just longed to follow in the footsteps of everybody before me. And it was so deep ingrained in me as long as I can remember I believed the Mormon church was the true church of God with all my heart like from my head to my toes and so that really dictated our entire lives we were at church every Sunday whether we were on vacation or not and the doctrines are so um, thoroughly thoroughly woven into the fabric of our souls from the time we're small children so that I had wanted nothing more than to obtain a temple marriage one day. 
by the time I was probably six years old, I would have told you that's my greatest dream in life to be married in the Mormon temple and then begin my exaltation toward the celestial kingdom where I would reside eternally. Some of that language, um, temple marriage, um, Celestial mm-hmm. kingdom. I think I have also heard terms like heavenly mother um, or the concept mm-hmm. of pre-existence related to um, life uh, and, and actually life yes. experience. Can you can you unpack some of those for us? What what are some of the words, languages, doctrinal pieces that you feel like average Americans need to know about Mormonism? I think it would be easiest understood if I just gave you a quick overview of the Mormon plan of salvation, which is what was really drilled into us from the time we were born. So Mormons believe and Mormon doctrines teach that we all existed in a pre-existing world before we came here and Heavenly Father was married to Heavenly Mother and they birthed everybody, including Jesus and Satan and all the fallen spirits as spirit children in this pre-existing world. And the goal was that we would then use our talents, our abilities to progress, um, to grow ourselves into Godhood one day, like they are. And so a key uh, mantra that we said all the time was, as God once was, man now is. So God was once a man and man now is as God now is man may become. And that was just my normal. And so the goal was to become God one day. And so we started in this pre-existing world and there we were, Jesus was the firstborn of heavenly father and heavenly mother. And then Lucifer and the rest of us came along and we all chose our destinies there. We chose our families that we would have on this earth we, I'd been taught that if somebody's paralyzed on earth, they chose that in the pre-existing world. So we not only chose the goodness in life, we chose our hardships. And so we could only progress so far in the pre-existing world. And so we all needed to come down and gain mortal bodies. And that's a critical piece to becoming, exalting into Godhood in the future life in the celestial kingdom. So all of us had to come down here and as a result of being spirit children of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, we came with a divine nature, not a sinful nature. And so we were basically good. And Jesus, though there was sin in the world, Jesus's death, well, they believe that Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's really the focus of his suffering rather than the cross. But what that did was enable us to resurrect from the grave. So we come to this earth. We live our earth life, and the critical pieces of the earth life are that we get baptized in the Mormon church because that's essential to one day going to the temple and obtaining a temple marriage. So family, this eternal family, which begins with a temple marriage where you're sealed for all time and eternity in the celestial heaven, that is the central piece to Mormon doctrine, to the ability to exalt into Godhood. You can't get there, which is eternal life, celestial kingdom life, uh, in the celestial heaven, exalting into Godhood. So so everything I, can, I'm doing... 
Yeah. Can I pause there for just a second? Because I'm, you sure. know, as you're, you know, as you're sharing, um, there are a lot of passages of scripture that are leaping to my mind that are clearly contrary to, um, to this theology, to this doctrine. Um, what do Mormons do with the Bible? Because obviously the Bible is bearing a witness that is very, very different than what you are articulating. Right. And I can speak for myself. And what I did with the Bible, I was taught one of our 13 articles of faith is we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. And so there was that caveat as far as it is translated correctly. And we were taught and that so every only Mormon, the King James— every, every Mormon studies uh, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek in order to be able to, to know whether or not the translation of the Bible that they have is an accurate one? That seems like no, that would be important. It seems like that would be important, right? We're just taught that the King James Version is the most accurate version of the Bible— and that there's a Joseph Smith translation that accompanies the Bible. So we're, we're not allowed to read anything but the King James Version. And then we needed to use this Joseph Smith translation. Well, the Joseph Smith translation takes key verses and retranslates them in mm. order to accommodate Mormon doctrine. Mm. That is super helpful. Okay, we have to take a pause, uh, a, a very brief break. When we come back, Lisa Brockman and I are going to continue our conversation um, about Mormonism, about the Mormon belief system, and then we're going to talk uh, very, very specifically about Jesus and the worldview that Lisa now uh, possesses and shares with others as a Christian. So we're talking about her book, Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple, and I know that you guys are already thinking to yourselves, I need that. I need to understand not only this religious doctrine, but how to influence my neighbors who may be Mormon. That's actually what this book is designed to do. We'll be right back. My conversation partner is Lisa Brockman. She is the author of Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple. Um, it's her debut book. I dare say it uh, is her first, but will not be her last. Um, she mm. is bringing uh, she is bringing not only her testimony to bear. She is helping those of us who uh, have never been inside uh, the Mormon culture, the the Mormon uh, faith system. She is helping us to understand the LDS from the outside. Um, because she has an insider perspective on that. This book, Out of Zion, will equip you. It provides a framework that you need if you not only want to understand Mormon culture, but identify the differences between what Mormons believe and uh, and what the Bible actually says, and how to compassionately engage in conversation with, uh, with Mormons uh, who may be your neighbors, um, maybe people are saying, hey, Mormonism is just another variety of the Christian faith. All of those conversations, um, which we need to be having, this book equips us to have those. So it's Out of Zion, Meeting Jesus in the Shadow of the Mormon Temple. Uh, Lisa, again, thank you so much for being here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say that one of the, um, w- one of the particularly profound differences is the understanding of marriage 
And and so you grew up. I mean, you shared this that like from, you know, from very early on, obtaining a temple marriage um, was was this dream. Um, yeah. Marriage. Is, you you are now married. Um, you've got five kids. Um, talk with us about how your understanding of marriage had to change and has changed. Well, marriage was like men were my idols. I was raised to believe my husband would become my God. He would resurrect me from the grave. He okay, was everything. I'm, trying, I'm just resisting saying, okay, that's crazy. But I'm good. I will. <laughs> I've resisted. Okay, go ahead. I know. I've resisted so much. <laughs> and it's interesting when, when a, uh, being raised in the faith, this was my only paradigm. So it was so normal to me. I just believed everybody believed these things. It was absolutely shocking to me when my boyfriend in college confronted me with the idea of the biblical God and the nature of the biblical God. I had no concept that everyone didn't believe that God was once a man who exalted into Godhood. So, and that there were just endless numbers of gods because we were all progressing into Godhood. Um, So, Re- tell me your question once again. I got off track. There. Well, well, no. I mean, you're right. You're right on track because marriage is um, is such an important part of this conversation, and the yeah. way people in the Mormon culture and I describe it as a culture because it's not just a faith system; it is a culture. Um, a and culture. so, and so, folks who are living in the Mormon culture have a very different understanding about men and women, yes. about marriage, about children, about family, um, than yes. those of us living outside of Mormon culture. And I think that in order for us to mm. understand our Mormon neighbors and speak into their lives, we have to understand this essential difference. Yes, you do. Like family is everything. Family is eternal. That's why it was so devastating for my parents when I left the Mormon church. I broke this eternal chain of eternal family and being sealed together through time and eternity. So for me as a Christian, marriage is part of God's creation order. And and it's a place where I get to, alongside my husband, image the community of the Trinity in this world the best we can, as feebly as we do some days. But that's my vision for marriage. It's a place where we get to enjoy Trinitarian love and community and bring that to our children and bring that into our culture. It's a place where we're molded into holiness. In Mormonism, marriage is the key to future happiness. It's all about happiness in the Mormon church. They call their plan of salvation the great plan of happiness. Mm. Um, again, I find the Word of God welling up uh, and wanting to say things like, uh, Jesus was never married, um, right. and so he must not be the pattern um, for Mormons in the same way that he is the pattern for Christians. I mean, we, we, we're we submitting moment by moment to the active presence of the Holy Spirit, who is mm-hmm. bringing us into greater and greater conformity with who Christ is. Like that that's sort of the life of sanctification for a Christian. And so yeah. the goal is not my own happiness, but but my Christ-likeness. And God's doing that work. I'm not. I'm willingly, right. you know, submitting and participating. Um, but Jesus was not married. And so we don't—we uh, might mistakenly elevate marriage sometimes in— uh, in Christian culture, but mm-hmm. but we don't do so if we're really honest to what Jesus says, which is that marriage is not eternal. There is no giving and receiving of marriage in heaven, according to right. Jesus. And so, right. um, so how might a Mormon respond if I introduced 
those biblical realities to them? Well, initially, they'd be very um, unreceptive. Mormons come to a place of believing that church is, their church is true through a burning in the bosom, it's called. In their book, in their scriptures, it says, pray about these things. And if you will know that if you pray with a sincere heart, you will know that it's true by a burning in your bosom. And so what's really critical to understand is that Mormons have not made an intellectual commitment to truth. They've made an emotional, they've had an emotional experience and their testimony is based on emotion. So if your first foot forward is to combat them with intellectual realities, you're going to come to a very hard wall. And so entering in, it's, I always ask, will you share with me your testimony? Because testimony is the plumb line for everything true in Mormonism. Uh, they'll tell you, you can't intellectualize faith. If you start to um, get to a place where you're pricking into those tender spaces that haven't been pricked, the caveat is, well, you can't intellectualize faith, then you're not being faith-filled. And so it's a long journey sharing Jesus with Mormons. It's embodying him. It's bringing the incarnated Christ in your body through loving them, through bringing grace into their lives. Because the only thing I'd heard about grace, the only context I'd heard the word grace was, it's by grace we are saved after all we can do. I've never heard Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so, yeah, I think if they were to hear that, they would just, it would not go anywhere very quickly. If you have a long-term relationship, there, then you're getting to places where there's trust. And, or if you're dating someone like I was, who was your God, <laughs> then it's mm. like, how do you know the church is true? And I'm like, because I've had a burning in the bosom. How could you base your whole eternal destiny on a burning in your bosom? Can you defend the historicity of Mormonism? Can you defend authenticity of Joseph Smith as a prophet? And within five minutes in that car, he had taken my security to a place where that eternal foundation felt like quicksand. And so because Gary was my God, I was idolizing him. I stayed in those conversations. But oh my gosh, I would have fled so fast had I not idolized him. Okay, Lisa, you and I have run out of time today. Will you come back? I would love to come back. Uh, because I, I, we have literally just scratched the surface of this conversation. And, um, and I feel like with high-profile Mormons like Mitt Romney um, and, and conversations about, you know, 16 million people are, are followers of the Mormon faith, um, Christians need to be equipped for these conversations. And we need to learn from somebody who actually understands. And so thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for the book, Out of Zion. Uh, you guys can find Lisa at lisabrockman.me, um, and she'll be back. So uh, thanks be to God for that. we got to take one more quick break, and, uh, and then today's episode will be over. Lisa, thank you so much. My pleasure. So I just want to uh, quickly lift up a, a prayer for a listener who was listening yesterday afternoon to Bill's show and, uh, and was just asking for encouragement for a church meeting last night um, where he felt like he needed some, uh, some courage uh, to ask hard questions, and, uh, and he has done so, and God is so good. So I just want to thank God for that. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.